Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumwatt Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumwatt or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumwatt.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. Well, let me say it just one more time. Happy Mother's Day. I feel like every single year, God brings basically the exact same thing to my mind as I sit down to write this message that happens to fall on Mother's Day. Uh, You mothers, I'm not just saying this, you don't get enough credit. And again, I'm not just saying that for the sake of flattery. Uh, You genuinely have the hardest job on the planet. Uh, as it turns out for my life and kind of my work schedule, I'll usually end up watching all three of my kids. We've got a picture of them here. we got Logan, Oakley, and Malachi. Um, all three of them, just like me, one on three, without my wife present, like two to three times a week for usually about two to three hour spurts. Uh, maybe my wife has gone to go work out. Maybe she's leading like a women's group, but it's just me with, with the three munchkins. And, and I'm not just saying this. Those are consistently the hardest two to three hours of my week every single week. Uh, I'll get them down to bed and I just kind of like collapse on the couch. And inevitably, uh, I think this question on a very, very regular basis, how does my wife do this all day? I I am fully acknowledging to all of you, I couldn't pull it off. So, So again, to all you mamas out there, we love you. We thank you. We adore you. We literally could not survive without you. Uh, Well, today uh, we are continuing in a series that we started a couple of weeks ago. This morning is actually part three of 10 titled Follow. Uh, And just in case you're new around here, let me kind of give you the 5,000 foot view that the basic premise of this series, it goes like this. Uh, Believing is easy. The reality is it's just not that hard to believe in a guy who predicted his own death and predicted his own resurrection like he actually pulled that off. Jesus did that. God, your creator, made the standard by which you and I get that right standing back with him extraordinarily simple. It comes down to faith or belief or trust, synonymous terms. It comes down to belief in Jesus and belief in Jesus alone. Not not faith plus good works, not faith plus these religious steps. It's just faith. That's it. But as Jesus reminds us over and over and over again throughout his time on earth, following is hard. Like actually following Jesus is no joke. It's an all out war waged against self or as scripture, this book that we call the Bible puts it, it's a war waged against our flesh and a commitment to leverage our entire lives for the kingdom of God. Jesus actually goes out of his way to frame it like this. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower, not just my believer, You must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. He says to to deny yourself, give up your way of doing things. He says, when you sign on the dotted line to follow me, you no longer call the shots, I do. You are no longer master of your domain, I am. No longer do you live for you, but now you live for me. And if you're paying even the least bit of attention to what I'm saying right now, especially if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, or maybe you're just kind of beginning to explore, by the way, uh, it's not lost on me that on a day like today, Mother's Day, uh, there's a whole lot of people watching who kind of got guilted into watching this right now. It's okay. We know you're out there. But, But if you're paying attention to what I'm saying, the logical next question you might ask is, okay, if following Jesus is so hard, then why would I do it? I mean, after all, who, who really wants to give up their own way of doing things? Who would want to willingly hand the keys of their life to someone else? 
I mean, we don't really want to ask it this way because it sounds so incredibly selfish and conceited, but deep down we're wondering, what's in it for me? And Jesus, with a refreshing honesty, he sort of beats our selfish, nearsighted brains to the punch. He continues and says, hey, if you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But, but if you give up your life for my sake, you'll, you'll save it. And, and then he just asks us this rather blunt question. He's like, well, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? In other translations, it reads, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? He's telling us something that deep down, we, we all already know this to be true. He's saying, in the end, you're going to give it all up anyway. All of this stuff, these possessions, your wealth that you've accumulated on this earth, your reputation, your, your legacy, in the end, it's all gone. So, so your Savior, the, the God who got off of his throne and offered his life for your sin, that that God offers you the opportunity to begin to leverage your life in such a way that it not only impacts your eternity, but the eternities of all the people around you. To, to begin to leverage your life for an eternal kingdom that will never fade away. As Jesus more plainly puts it, by, by following me, you'll actually save your life. And again, he puts this, this blunt question in front of us. Well, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? He brings us to this point of tenderness, and he tells us, I am worth it. All of these perceived sacrifices that you're going to experience on this earth, in the end, won't be seen as sacrifices at all. Because at the end of your life, what will quickly and sharply come into focus is the degree to which you leverage your life for the kingdom of God. In that moment, nothing else will matter. And for those of you who, who viewed and leveraged your lives on this earth as living sacrifices for God's kingdom, you leveraged your life as living sacrifices for Jesus, you will undeniably declare Jesus is worth it. A 100% satisfaction guarantee. And so practically speaking, what we're doing in this series is comparing and contrasting the way of this world, the way of our flesh, versus the way of Jesus. That the better that he invites every single one of us into. Let's just ask the question, what does following Jesus actually look like? That the better that he's quick to admit won't be easy to pull off during our time on earth, but come the end of our lives will undeniably be worth it. Because truthfully, let's just ask this question, where has your way gotten you up to this point? Jesus says, follow me. Don't you think it's probably time that you give my way a shot? So there's already been a lot of good stuff in this series. Uh, last week, for instance, we talked about discipline over comfort. I'm telling you, a worthwhile message for both the Christian and the non-Christian alike. And uh, if you weren't here for part one in particular, it really kind of sets the stage for this entire series. Uh, I'd really, really encourage you to go back, catch yourself up at grumlaw.com slash messages. Or as always, I say this just about every week, you can find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you grab your podcasts. Now, as we walk into today's topic, I want to call attention to an observation that I'm sure hasn't gone unnoticed by most of the people who are watching right now. 
Uh, our society, our world seems to be clearly heading in a direction opposite of what God, opposite of what our creator. And by the way, even if you don't really know yet where you stand in this whole God thing, you can still participate in this thought exercise. Let's just say, if there's a God out there, surely what we're experiencing right now in our world, that this cannot be what God had in mind. Okay, can we like all agree on that point? Let's unpack this a little bit further. We as human beings have a propensity to think that whatever particular cultural moment that we are living in is the worst society has ever been. And I can't tell you the number of Christians in particular, I hear say things like all the time, surely Jesus is gonna come back soon. I mean, how could it get any worse? Now, I'm certainly not gonna stand up here right now and try to defend and, you know, this particular moment in history. Things don't seem to be great really from my vantage point either. But even an elementary dive into the history books will reveal to us that as bad as things seem to be going right now, there have been many times throughout human history where a very compelling argument could be made that society was in a markedly worse position than it sits today. Uh, for instance, practices like infanticide were exceedingly common in places like ancient Rome, where it, it was this brutal practice where maybe because your child had a birth defect, maybe it was a gender that you didn't prefer, maybe because honestly of a religious practice, you would expose your baby, that was their word, you would take your newborn child outside of the city walls and allow nature to do whatever nature would do with that newborn infant. Our country quite literally being built on the backs of people being forced against their will to come to America as slaves. The, the atrocities committed by leaders like Stalin and Hitler. Here's the point, that there's always been a contingent of people throughout human history at that particular moment who have tried to lay their stake as this is the worst period ever in the history of the world. Surely things couldn't get any worse. And what far wiser people than myself have taken note of is that often in these trying times we find ourselves a part of, but particularly in first world countries like America, it's not just the non-Christians hanging their heads in defeat. It's often actually the Christians who are quite literally leading the charge in this sentiment of, woe is the world, woe is me, let's shrug our shoulders and bang our heads against thee. It's a very famous poem that I wrote this week. I'm pretty proud of that. Now, rather than a people who are marked by a joyful endurance, we're actually, as followers of Jesus, often leading the charge in gloomy defeat. But, but friends, this isn't the way of the follower of Jesus. But following Jesus actually compels us to place endurance over defeat. But because lest we already forgot what we celebrated on Easter, the battle has already been won. Death has been defeated. The story has been written and already played out. Evil loses. Jesus has already emerged from the battlefield with the head of our enemy. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus rose from the grave, he once and for all declared that the grave, death, evil, sin has been defeated. So, so regardless of how terrible your personal circumstances seem like they've gotten, regardless of the crud show happening in our world right now, we need not cower back in fear and wonder how it will all turn out. It's already turned out. Evil loses, Jesus wins. So for the follower of Jesus, we are invited down a much different path from what the world offers. We're invited again to choose endurance over defeat. Now, I could theoretically end the talk right there because that is truth whether you choose to receive it or not. 
But, but it's one thing to believe something. And as we're talking about in this series, it's something entirely different to begin to actually live it, to actually follow the way of Jesus, to begin to actually practice endurance. So, so how do we, practically speaking, practice endurance over defeat? Again, this is another one of those areas where even if you're not a Christian, you'll inevitably find yourself agreeing with the teachings of Jesus because no one, not a person on this planet, would willingly choose defeat over endurance. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at a letter titled Hebrews, uh, which we find in the New Testament, that second half of the Bible. Now, what's interesting about Hebrews is we don't actually know who wrote this letter, but we do know who it was written to. And it was written to these Jewish Christians who were actually considering going back to Judaism. They were actually considering punting on this whole movement that we call Christianity, which, by the way, is so applicable to the conversation that we're having in this series. These Jewish Christians living in the first century were quickly finding that following Jesus in a largely Jewish culture was not easy. Just like so many of you have found that following Jesus in a culture that is increasingly hostile towards Christianity is not easy. So, so here is how this writer encourages us in endurance over defeat. What we're going to do right now is we're going to read through these four verses relatively quickly, and then we're going to extract the plan as laid out by the writer of Hebrews for choosing endurance over defeat. So if you want to follow along, you can pull out your Bibles and jump to Hebrews chapter 12, uh, or as always, we'll have it up here on the screen as well. But Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. There the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with, there's our word, endurance, the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. But because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility, practically speaking, that he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, he says, you have not given your lives like he did in your struggle against sin. So let's jump back here to verse one. There it says again, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. The writer here in the book of Hebrews, in the letter of Hebrews, outlines a four-step plan to place endurance over defeat. Number one, as this points out, recognize that others are taking their cues from you. You wanna know when every single one of us are on our best behavior? when we know someone is watching. And you wanna know when every single one of our worst, most regretful decisions were made? When we didn't think that person was watching. I mean, we might not have cared about that person, but had mom or dad or that friend or that teacher or your brother or your wife or your kids, if that person had been watching, no chance you do that. And what the writer right here is begging all of us to consider is be mindful of who is watching you. Because whether you choose to embrace this or not, someone is looking to you as the example in their life. 
I don't care who you are, I promise you that someone is watching you and pointing to you as the example for why they have chosen to live in that particular way. Listen, for example, my walk with Jesus, it took on an entirely different weight when I got married. Because what quickly came into focus was, oh my goodness, this other person is now looking to me as the primary spiritual influence in their life. Then we started having kids. And that felt even weightier. It was like, oh my goodness, my kids are going to look at me as the example of, hey, this is what it means to follow Jesus. It forces you to really consider habits and behaviors. And again, this ain't just a Christian thing. This is like an everyone thing. It forces you to consider what you watch, who you spend your time with, how you speak about other people when they're not present. Daily disciplines for the follower of Jesus, like reading scripture and prayer how you spend your money, how you spend your free time, even your posture during parts of these weekly worship services like singing and worshiping. All of that comes sharply into focus when you recognize there are people taking their physical, emotional, and spiritual cues from you. I've used this example many, many times before. Uh, as a pastor, a, a call that I actually get on a very regular basis, a, a text, an email, a message on social media from parents who are saying, we just, we just need to talk. And, and they've kind of entered into this crisis mode because their child, whom they recently sent off to college, it, it's quickly coming into focus that, oh my goodness, I don't know if my kid actually loves Jesus. Because they had some sort of conversation, some sort of epiphany where they realize, uh, they've been at school now for six months, and they haven't gone to church a single time. And then when I asked them about that, they told me they never read their Bible, that they never spend any time in prayer. And, and in fact, they're actually beginning to question their faith altogether. And usually where the conversation spirals to is, Shay, will you pick up the phone and call them and convince them to follow Jesus again? And usually that conversation goes basically the exact same way every time. Me very compassionately asking them the question, what did you expect? This is what you modeled for your child when they were under your roof for the first 18 years of their life. They're actually living out now what has been modeled to them. For instance, you really only ever went to church, and in fact, right now, you still only come to church when there's nothing else going on in your life. That the minute the soccer game came up, the minute the vacation came up, really the minute anything else came up, you decided to choose option B. When it came to that daily quiet time, it was just kind of a thing you did every once in a great while. Maybe you felt convicted on a Sunday morning, but that just wasn't anything that you were modeling to their child. You perhaps weren't really thinking about it in these terms, but your life was a much stronger voice for them than a person like me whom they maybe heard for a combined 60 minutes a month. And even if you're sitting here right now and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus and Perhaps you're wholly disinterested in following Jesus. This is just as true for you. Even you would be wise to embrace this piece of advice from Scripture. We would all be wise to ask ourselves the question, if, if someone was using my life as the manual for how to prosper in this life, would they be satisfied with the results? Would they reflect and say, my goodness, that, that was a good read. That was really, really good stuff. Or, or would they be jumping on Amazon to write a scathing review? What a ripoff. Continues in verse one, it says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, 
especially the sin that so easily trips us up. That the second part of this plan laid out in Hebrews is lose the dead weight. The reality is every single one of us, both the Christian and the non-Christian alike, we all have weight that is holding us back from the life that God has designed for every one of us. Again, I wanna speak for a quick moment to those of you who maybe wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You don't need to be a part of a church or to call yourself a Christian to get on board with this. That there are undeniably habits and practices that are holding you back from making more money, from receiving that promotion, from having a more fulfilling marriage, from being a better father, from being a better mother, but for the follower of Jesus, that the writer here is appealing to something far more important. He's imploring us to lose that dead weight in order to be a more effective witness for the kingdom of God. To not just be people who talk about God with their lips, but their life models that as well. That your life is marked by such love, hope, faith, discipline, joy that inevitably causes other people to lean in. This is kind of interesting. In, in ancient Greece, runners would actually compete naked so that nothing would be slowing them down. Probably as a side note here, it would be a pretty effective way in getting more people to watch track and field events. But, but, but the question, what is holding you back? What's holding you back? What secret addiction? What terrible habit? What, what unconfessed sin? What is right now growing and festering in the dark that needs to be brought into the light? What is present in your life right now that if it continues to go unchecked will inevitably cause damage down the road? Might it be greed, pride, arrogance, lust, gossip, dishonesty? And I want you to keep in mind, just like we talked about last week, it might not be some act that screams, I'm evil. See, for instance, nobody in this room would try to make a reasonable argument that looking at pornography is a good idea. And that might very well be the thing that is holding you back. Confess it, seek accountability, put on the filters, wage war against it. But for many of us, the response to this question, what is holding you back, is far more subtle. It's those spending habits that have gone entirely unchecked. It's watching television every single night for three plus hours. It's aimlessly scrolling on your phone, poor eating habits. Like an Olympic athlete, fiercely eliminate that dead weight. Church, come on, we already have too much in our lives that we can't control hitting us from every single angle. But we cannot afford to be apathetic towards that which we can aggressively, strategically, fiercely lose. Get rid of that dead weight. I got a call from a buddy of mine a couple of months ago. He's been a guy that you know I've been walking with in this whole faith journey now for years, literally since college. And he calls me out of the blue and he's just like, hey man, I just got to get something off my chest. I just feel like I need to share this with someone. Otherwise I fear where it might lead. But he shared with me that he had a new female coworker and these are his words. He just said three things. He said, I'm noticing her. I was like, well, what do you mean? You're noticing her. It's like, when she comes into a room, I just find myself kind of wanting to talk to her more than the other people. And I'm being honest, she's just physically attractive. I, I, I'm noticing her. And he's like, Keep on, I'm not flirting with her. Like things have not crossed any sort of line, but I'm just telling you this because I don't want this to progress to anything more than I'm just noticing her. 
Church, to the world, that sounds like insanity. It, it sounds insane that you would pick up your friend and say, I'm noticing a female, but that is fiercely eliminating dead weight. That is declaring war against your flesh. That is saying to the evil one, you have no place in my life. Nice try, but move along. Now, I, I feel like before we go here to, to part three of this, the third part of this plan, I just want to get this out there because I'll, I'll admit, even as your pastor, I'm often quick to just kind of breeze right past this. And this is an important, important point, especially as we look at this the whole like four-step plan here. You can try behavior modification and try getting rid of that dead weight on your own and you know, motivate yourself and initiate good habits in your life, and that's great. But one of the things that scripture returns to over and over and over again, one of the things that my own life has shown me, one of the things that my spiritual heroes have pointed out to me, one of the things that scripture, again, is very, very clear about is that long-term, you try to keep this up, you strip off the dead weight and just be a good person and just be better at life. It's really, really hard to keep up on your own. And that is why as followers of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit, God in spirit, who lives within us. Long term, I don't think you're going to be able to keep it up on your own unless you are having a daily moment by moment dependence on him. The Holy Spirit who goes before you, who is with you, who goes after you. So, so I don't say that as a form of discouragement. I'm just telling you for the follower of Jesus, we have honestly like an unfair advantage in this regard. If you're not a follower of Jesus, again, I'm just kind of telling you, good luck keeping this up on your own. Continues in verse one. It says, let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Part three of this plan, run to win. Now, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this point because the entire message last week honed in on this just single point. But in short, we're being told, don't just run this race that we call life to barely finish. Run to win. Live a holy, disciplined life that you're not just barely crossing the finish line at the end of this life, but rather you're sprinting into eternity with your heavenly father awaiting you with open arms with these words on the tip of his tongue, well done, my good and faithful servant. And to drive home a point that we drove home last week that we almost mention every single week, if you have any intention on winning the race, you have to make that daily time with Jesus, what we call around here that daily encounter where you're actually picking up and reading this book that we call the Bible, allowing the words to dissect you, convict you, transform you, where you're actually spending daily time with Jesus in this thing that we call prayer, just sharing honest feelings with him. It's the single most important habit that you could possibly develop in your life. Your relationship with Jesus is not gonna be formed here on Sunday mornings. It's gonna be formed when you're creating that one-on-one -on -one space to actually form a relationship. Like we talked about last week, schedule it. It's too important to leave it to chance. And again, it's in that quietness with just you and him where a relationship is actually built. If you're new to this whole Christianity thing, you're just kind of checking this out. Again, maybe mama forced you to watch with her right now. And maybe you're going, I'm a little skeptical. I mean, how could you have a relationship with somebody you can't even see? My, my invitation, my challenge to you would be just begin to give God the first 10 minutes every day. You'll start reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those first four books of the New Testament, that second half of the Bible, they're the four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. Just start reading about Jesus. Very practically speaking, what do you have to lose? And then it wraps up by saying, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. 
Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you haven't yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. Fourth part of this plan, the most important one, keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, now it'd be really, really easy to twist this message into a cute motivational speech and just kind of implore all of you to keep solely focused on your goal, whatever that primary objective is in this life, your career, your marriage, your hobby, your retirement. But again, as Jesus reminds us, as you all actually know, (laughs) you're not taking any of that with you. So the writer here implores us, Jesus himself encourages us to keep our eyes on him. Jesus is the prize. And in this life, when you face discouragement, when evil seems like it's winning, when it all feels like a complete waste of time, when it feels like addiction and bad habits have won, when you are at your lowest of lows and frankly questioning everything, he tells us, keep your eyes focused on me. He says, after all, I counted you so worthy and loved you so much. I mean, he would have died for you if it was just you, that I gave my life for your sin. As Jesus was nailed to that cross, experiencing untold physical and emotional grief and pain, as the wrath of God, which was intended for us, was poured out instead on him, in that moment, I can guarantee you, he started to question things. And in that moment, rather than calling for angels and his heavenly father to come rescue him, which he could have done, In that moment, he was thinking of you. He declared that you are worth it. And now he invites you, follow me. Keep your eyes focused on me just like I kept mine focused on you. Yes, you, child, are worth it. Jesus showed you so when he gave his life for you. And now he invites you to follow him. Eyes up. Keep him focused on me. I am worth it. Now, perhaps no life in the history of the world outside of Jesus himself better exemplifies what we're talking about this morning than the Apostle Paul, the guy who at one point actually early on in his life was the most outright critic of Christianity. In fact, he had kind of made it his life's mission to make sure that Christianity wouldn't make it out of the first century. He was going around arresting, persecuting, killing Christians all over the ancient Mediterranean world. But then through a series of events that only God could have possibly orchestrated, he's now on the front lines basically telling everyone who would listen about Jesus uh, and spreading the gospel all over the ancient Mediterranean world. In fact, I don't think this is a stretch to say this. We're probably not gathered here this morning talking about Jesus without that first century work of Paul. And you would expect, at least I would expect, a life destined for such spiritual greatness to be one where God surely was protecting him from pain and suffering. But as is often the case for our faith heroes, 
that just wasn't Paul's reality. Paul was shipwrecked, snake-bitten, constantly in and out of prison, beaten, lonely, hungry, constantly being persecuted. It's like, how does a guy like that possibly endure? How does he not only survive, but how does he thrive and continue to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth? Well, he answers that question in his letter to the early Christian church in Corinth. He says, our, our present troubles are small and won't last very long. He's like, this time on earth, it's, it's so short in the context of eternity. He says, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For, for the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. He says, this time on earth is, is temporary. And no matter how terrible, no matter how gloomy, no matter how horrible my present circumstances, he's going, I know it'll pale in comparison to the eternal riches that await. He's going, this is how I live a life marked by endurance rather than defeat. He's going, hey, for the follower of Jesus, our hope isn't attached to circumstances. Our hope is attached to Jesus. Our hope is attached to the King of Kings who got off of his throne for you. Our hope is attached to the Savior who rose from the grave and defeated death, who defeated sin, who defeated evil for you. And that God, Jesus himself, invites you, follow me.